0: Do you mind if I write some of this down or? Go ahead. Okay. Just, what, what happened? I mean, help me understand all this. Stuff. I don't really know what
1: happened. I'm still trying to understand what happened. So start of this was, I was the only team working over the holidays over Christmas. I actually got to a point where I was like, can you stop? I'm tired of killing people. I shouldn't be killing people this easily from this spot without moving.
2: That's one of the snipers working with the army in Ukraine. He's a Canadian Forces veteran from Alberta, and his code name is Teflon.
1: And I'd hide, and I'd have guys doing observer observer from another area, They message on the radio, targets, guys coming, got up on position and just poof.
2: He's talking about his time in Bakhmut, a city in eastern Ukraine on the war's front line, which is still in Ukrainian hands, but largely surrounded by Russian forces.
1: The war is way too live, it's way too active, you're not dealing with uh, established positions. You're dealing with waves of assaults, endlessly, constantly. And from where you're looking, at
2: seven... Teflon spoke with The Globe's Mark McKinnon. We aren't using his real name because special forces fighters aren't allowed to share their identities. Today, Mark tells us about the state of the battle for Bakhmut, Russia's tactics in the war, and what this Canadian sniper is doing in the middle of it all. I'm Anika Ramen Welms, and this is The Decibel. From the Globe and Mail. Mark, thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you, Manika. So you talked to this Canadian sniper who's who's codenamed Teflon. What's he like as a person?
0: Uh, I first met Teflon back in September, I think it was. Um, We were covering the, the... I was covering the Heartkeep Offensive and his unit... He's part of the international legion for the defense of Ukraine, which is sort of these foreigners fighting for Ukraine, and his unit was participating in the action there. And we we were just speaking on background then about sort of the role that foreigners are playing in that fighting. And he's very quiet, very uh, soft-spoken until you turn the microphone on. Then it gets quite effusive when you're talking about uh, what he sees as his job. Uh, and he speaks of being a sniper the way that somebody might speak of being a, a postman or um, a teacher. You, you describe his work. I mean, um, like you approach it the way anybody else approaches the job It is a work. job. That's the way I look at it. You know, it's, it's a job. He's gets, It's what he's paid to do. Um, and that's what drew him to Ukraine to a certain extent, was that an opportunity to do his job. When the war broke out, he was motivated to help Ukraine. He saw a place where, where his skills would be valuable.
2: And he recently got back from Bakhmut in Ukraine. What was he doing there, Mark?
0: So the story of uh, Teflon's time in Bakhmut is, is quite a complicated one. Um, okay. So Teflon and his team were sent into Bakhmut in early December, but he'd were, served with some of them before and they hadn't got on very well. And there's all sorts of accusations back and forth about who failed who on a previous mission. Boiling it down, um, of the five of them, four of them said, listen, you know, we're not comfortable with, with said, working together again.
1: They're like, well, what are you gonna do? I says, I have a mission and I have responsibility to do. So I loaded up the armored vehicle Solo, with my rifles, my gear.
0: And Teflon said, well, you know, people on the front line in the Ukrainian units are expecting a sniper. I'm going ahead anyways. On his own? Yeah. And this was wow. what made this story. I mean, we've been, it took us three weeks to get comfortable with publishing this story because, you know, it ends up being the tale of one man and what he says happened on Christmas Eve. And so in Bakhmut, he goes there on his own. Um, this later becomes an issue of dispute as his, his commander tries to order him back. But at this point, he was already in Bakhmut. And as Teflon said to me, it's like it's not like I could call an Uber. You know, I'm I was there. Um, yeah. He sets up at the position the Ukrainians asked him to. And they, you know, remember, there's supposed to be five guys setting up a unit um, in this building on the eastern edge of Bakhmut.
1: We made we stopped we stopped three waves of an assault that day with two
0: snipers. And he's uh, he's there alone with the help of a, a Ukrainian uh, radio. Um, sort of a translator, who's taking in messages from other Ukrainians in the field, saying, you know, for instance, the Russians are coming at this angle, at this speed. Yeah. And over the next 24 hours, he says...
1: Um, yeah, I took 15 confirmed on one day and 3 confirmed on the next day. And Russia just kept sending waves. So 15 confirmed to your heads? Yeah.
0: On them? Wow. Uh, which, you know, it is just speaks, I think, to what a bloody battle it is for and, and And just yeah. to get back to the point of verifying the story, the reason why it took us so long is We asked him, Teflon, for whatever evidence he could supply, and he sent us a series of photographs and videos that he'd taken over those 24 hours. We were able to geolocate him to the building he says he was in on the edge of Bakhmut. And actually, the credit should go to uh, my colleague Patrick Dell, uh, who's our video editor, but he took all the material that I forwarded him, and he didn't know the specifics of the story, but he came back to me saying, these photos were taken from this position, and it matched up with exactly where... Teflon had said he was. So we also bounced it off some of the Ukrainians who were you know, fighting in Bakhmut as well, who said this is entirely plausible given the way this, this battle for this city is going.
2: Okay. And, and you said he killed 15 people one day, three the next. Uh, how was he able to kill so many people on his own in, in such a short time?
0: This is the part that I think made this story worth publishing. I mean, we we're not, were not attempting to glorify one individual's exploits, especially exploits that involve killing 15 people, Um, I think why we thought this was worth publishing is what it tells us about the battle for Bakhmut and and sort of what the Russians are, you know, what they're doing to their own troops, frankly.
1: We're defending until we can't defend that spot anymore because they just destroy it with tanks and they just keep sending another wave. It's just relentless. Hmm.
0: So he says he basically, for most of this time, was in the same position, um, a window overlooking an approach to the eastern edge of uh, Bakhmut that the Russians sort of had to sort of come around a corner and then almost come down an alleyway at him.
1: But I could literally just, it's like a perfect line, it's a perfect straight shot. Where are you, like your position somewhere higher up there? Yeah, five stories up in a building, recessed back, and I'd watch him walk in all the way from out here.
0: And he said despite the fact that he kept, he'd repeatedly shot and fatally wounded uh, Russian soldiers from that position, despite the fact the Russians had... Um, you know, would have by at some point known there's clearly a sniper. That they kept coming down this way, and he said, you know, he he began to feel bad for the people that he was shooting at.
1: There's shots I made that I actually somewhat felt bad about because it was so outclassed.
0: He he, you know, said this is not a professional way of fighting a war. These are these are conscripts. They're just being fed forward. He uses terms like. Human waves to describe what was happening, you know, a very brutal type of warfare that. So this is and this is why we thought we should publish this, because it tells you, you know, how Russia is gaining ground in Bakhmut and and sort of the disregard for the lives of even their own soldiers in this.
2: And, and, And you said that that he said that he saw they were conscripts. How would he know that, Mark?
0: So this was an interesting point. He said that what was different for him from earlier battles in the war, first of all, was the level of training. No, they're
1: not. I think they're just so poorly trained and have no concept of any of it.
0: He said these Russian troops that were coming forward had no training, obviously, to him. They had or, or very minimal training. The equipment was not uh, the gear that he'd seen on professional Russian fighters.
1: They come from like two kilometers away. I walked them, watched them walk all the way in. They get within 500 meters, and you're like, okay, right on the kill zone, poof. And they learn nothing from the fact that you've done that to them repeatedly. And that position had been there for two weeks with other snipers, and they still keep coming.
0: And we know already before this article um, that it was not the regular Russian army that was involved in in the frontal assault on Bakhmut, but something called the Wagner Private Military Group. Yes, and the Wagner private military company has become infamous over the years for as like an arm of the Kremlin, sort of doing its dirty business in places like Syria and Libya, Central African Republic, and at this there's a video of the founder of Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, going going into prisons and telling these um, sort of convicts, many of them are who are supposed to spend their entire lives in a Russian prison, that go spend six months on the line front line in Ukraine, fight for your country when you come home you're a free person. Wow. So we know and uh, we've seen thousands of Russian conscripts getting drafted into uh, the Wagner private military group and then being sent to the front line and and there was a um was an allegation that's been made by repeatedly by uh, Ukrainians saying that that the Russian troops that are sort of coming forward in these human waves must be on some kind of drugs. And
1: like there's there's allegations that all these Russians must be drugged, there's no way. And I don't think I think it's just lack of training.
0: But what Teflon said was, I don't think these guys were drugged because they were reacting like humans. Like
1: human beings. And I've watched guys f- cry, and I've watched guys scream, and I've watched yeah. guys try to pull their friends back when they get killed. They're humans.
0: He said, you know, if I shot one of them, the their buddies would come running forward. They'd be crying. They'd be trying to drag their buddy off the field where, you know, a professional mm-hmm. soldiers would would just say, "Man down," and, and keep pushing forward or stand their position. He said they were running into danger to rescue their buddy and doing things you're not supposed to do.
2: Wow. I mean, seeing the, the way he's describing it, so seeing people react like humans chase after their buddy who's down. Uh, uh, he, he's killing 15 people who are not well-trained, not the, the standard soldier that you usually think about on these battlegrounds. I mean, Mark, how does he think about, about killing so many people in this way?
0: It's the most inhumane job
1: in the world. Like.
0: He calls it the most inhumane job in the world, what he has. And one that he happens to be good at was, again, his wording. And he, but he says that a couple of these shots are going to stick with him the rest of his life. And he talked about two of them in particular. One of them was a guy in a t-shirt who he estimates was uh, about 1,800 meters back from the position that Teflon was in.
1: He was carrying a box of munitions and a t-shirt.
0: And he thought, this guy doesn't think he's in any danger at all. And he says he shot made what was the longest shot of his career um, to hit this guy in his t-shirt.
1: But no matter how far back you are there, if I can put eyes on you, I'm going to put bullets in you. And because that starts to stop their guys from working out in the freedom of the day, because that's the role of a sniper, is to ultimately push into the minds of the enemy and make them question everything.
0: And the other one that he remembers was, um, it was a shot he didn't take, which was watching sort of the buddies coming on to rescue or, or drag off the body of one of the people that he had shot.
1: And... That shot I made, I watched that guy's friend walk over and try to do CPR. And I chose not to fire a second shot. I let them take that body.
0: He could have, he says, put a bullet into one of these guys who was pulling his dead comrade off the field that he just decided not to.
2: We'll be back in a moment. So why is Russia sending these waves of soldiers? Like, why are they using this tactic?
0: It's a tactic we haven't seen in a long time and one that probably should have been consigned to history by now. Um, Military historians talk about these human waves being used most recently in the Iran-Iraq war. Um, Someone else pointed out to me that they were also used in Ethiopia's civil war. It's brutal. Um, they are sending forward troops with little hope of success, but maybe they'll, you know, sort of force the Ukrainians to abandon positions. Uh,
1: they have lots of conscripts that they've hired, um, and sadly, it's working. That's why they're doing it. Like it is going. For, it's, it's working. They're working they're, yeah, they're gaining. Yeah, they're gaining ground.
0: The simple answer here is that it works for Russia. As awful as that sounds, they have a, such a numerical advantage in terms of the number of men soldiers they can mobilize versus what Ukraine can mobilize, that they can do this. They can send waves of infantry, waves of human beings forward. Effectively, they do this thing called scorched earth, where they use artillery and tanks to flatten entire neighborhoods so the Ukrainians can't dig in and and maintain their positions.
1: But when they destroy that position with artillery and tanks, we have no choice but to fall back to the next position, which enables their infantry to come, you know, 500 meters closer. What they're gaining they've gained 500 meters on of dirt
0: and then these soldiers are sent forwards and and a lot of them must know you know their their odds aren't very good they can see they're not well armed they haven't had much training and they're being sent into sort of gunfire um but in bakhmut at least and, and in the broader donbass area you can see the russian front line slowly grinding forward
1: they're making advances but at a massive expenditure of resources, munitions, and lives.
2: So he was holed up there in a building, shooting all these soldiers as they come as they come towards him. Mark, did the Russians must have at some point figured out he was he was there? Did they did they did they try to get at him at all?
0: Yes, he says that at some point um, it became obvious to even these these commanders who were ordering their men forward that you know there was a problem they had to deal with in this apartment block overlooking this alleyway
1: and they smashed the building with tanks, they smashed the building with artillery, and I just said, like, I'm not leaving.
0: The tank shelled the apartment building that he was in, and Teflon says he basically, you know, when he realized he was under attack, he got away from the window he was in. And he says he just sort of went into the hallway and and waited it out, and uh, once the tank stopped firing, he just changed windows and went back to his work. But after this incident, he actually... Uh, was put under investigation for refusing a, a direct order—the uh, order to leave Bakhmut. That that investigation's ended, and apparently, um, his name has been cleared.
2: That's uh, that's where you were saying at the beginning, where he he went off alone without his unit. So he was told to come back, and he didn't do that, and that's what he was in, in trouble for. Then,
0: yes, and that's why he first reached out to me, and and uh, like I said, we'd met before, but he he wanted to tell the story to sort of clear his name.
2: Do you think that's why he he was open to talking to you, Mark? Because I, I think like it's it's fairly rare to be able to talk to a sniper in this kind of situation. Like, it, Is that kind of his motivation behind actually opening up to a journalist?
0: Definitely. There's also another layer to this where um, we've had three Canadians um, who are members of the International Legion who died over the last year. Two of them, Teflon was close to. Um, and two of them died very recently, both of them in Bakhmut. And so... Um, that was very present in his mind, and I think he wanted to sort of get his his story on the record to a certain extent. Mm.
2: Yeah. Why is Bakhmut such a an important city for the Russians? Why are they focusing on on, on trying to take it?
0: I think there's two levels to this. Um, the, the 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 obvious one is if you look at a a railway map of the Donetsk area that uh, Bakhmut is part of. There's a couple of major intersections um, where trains heading north, south, east, and west intersect, and Bakhmut um, is one of them. And so if you want to be able to move material weapons, soldiers, uh, quickly around the Donbass area, controlling Bakhmut is, is, uh, is an essential way to do that. On another level, I think what we're seeing here is, you know, Russia hasn't had a lot of victories in the last little while. And I think uh, Vladimir Putin certainly would like to see some victories. And we there's a lot of talk that in the days, weeks ahead, we're going to see a major, major Russian offensive akin to what we saw at the start of last year coming. And what we may be seeing here is an attempt to tie up a lot of the Ukrainian military in defending Bakhmut while Russia prepares an attack perhaps somewhere else.
2: Oh, wow. I mean, so we are approaching, of course, the one year mark of, of the war later on this month on February 24th. You mentioned a major offensive. What what do you think is coming in the next few weeks?
0: Well, what I was hearing uh, when I was in Kyiv very recently um, and from official and unofficial sources is that essentially the Ukrainian army is deadlocked with with the Russian military right now all along the front line. There's not much movement over the last few months since the withdrawal from Kherson. At the same time, Russia is building up a second army, for want of a better term, that has hundreds of thousands of of freshly drafted conscripts, units from the Far East and from other parts of Russia that haven't yet been involved in the conflict. And this army, the second group, so if you've got the Ukrainians tied up in sort of an evenly matched fight, um, a a second attack by um, a a sizable force um, could be very difficult for the Ukrainians to hold their current positions against anyways.
2: How sizable are we talking about here?
0: It's as difficult to say. Um last year, if you remember, before the war started, we saw all sorts of videos of tanks and, and Russian military equipment equipment being moved east to west across uh, across Russia and into the to the border with Ukraine. We've seen a lot less of that this year, and I think part of that is a Russian control of the internet. last year was it was it was a message they wanted the world to see. They wanted everyone they wanted everyone to see the size of this force they were building and to put pressure on Ukraine to except of Vladimir Putin's demands. This year, they're being much more covert about the build-up. But uh, Ukrainian intelligence and defense officials believe it's, you know, basically doubling the size of the current force to 300,000 uh, extra soldiers beyond what's currently uh, deployed in Ukraine.
2: Wow. Just lastly here, Mark, I, I want to go back to Teflon. Where is he now? And, and does he plan to go back to the front lines?
0: Yes, I've been in contact with him since the article was published, and um, he's had this internal investigation, has cleared his name or so, says uh, the spokeswoman for the International Legion, and uh, now she says they're, you know, planning to give him another unit to, to command. He's the team leader, so the, he's planning to go back to the front line. And, uh, you know, you ask him about the possibility that this, you know, could be where he ends up dying, and he says, you know...
1: If I was to leave and go home I would regret it knowing that I I left unfinished I don't want to treat this like a bad night of gambling or a good night of gambling and you don't know when to leave like I don't want to push it too far
0: you know given everything that had happened it would have been very easy for him to say you know what if you guys are questioning my integrity or whatever I'm gonna go home he seems to want to do the opposite
1: we all have an expiry date but so far trusting on my gut I'm not there yet
2: Mark, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Manika. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.